Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Our text today is Psalm 96. We will be reading it at the end of the sermon. I want you to keep your Bibles open to it, though. I'll mention it at the beginning, but we'll read it at the end. In his book on prayer, Timothy Keller writes about the Lord's Prayer, specifically the phrase, Your Kingdom Come. This, then, is a lordship petition. It is asking God to extend his royal authority over every part of our lives, emotions, desires, thoughts, and commitments. In the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, we read statements such as what we find here in Psalm 96. If you look at verse number 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. It is worth noting that Psalms 93, 97, and 99 begin with these words, the Lord reigns. And we also read a similar version in Isaiah 52, 7, a familiar verse. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. If you're still at Psalm 96, you'll notice that it, be, it continues in verse number 11. Let the, he, the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sound resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. And just a couple things here. First of all, judgment is about setting things right. It's not an arbitrary or capricious act where God somehow zaps something or someone. We saw this in the series on creation. That justice is not revenge. And in some ways, it's not simply the righting of wrongs. Rather, it is pointing ahead to what God intends. And that is a new creation. It is, in fact, setting things right. For God to be justified in patiently sustaining the world as he does and redeeming it, things must, in fact, be made right. And that's what justice is all about. This is what reconciliation is all about. It is God's act of aligning all things in their proper relationship to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. The second thing, and this is what I want to talk about today, is at, the, at its heart in this psalm, the issue is authority. We might like the first matter about judgment, that it isn't capricious and that it is about setting things right. Uh, this one presents problems, the idea of God and his authority. Authority is, I would say, a major issue. It has been in the modern and or postmodern eras. Because, if you remember, freedom is the modern virtue par excellence. Um, in a recent book, and I mentioned this last week, and it's been very helpful for me, by David Kozais, who's a political, a political science professor in Canada. The book is entitled, We Answer to Another Authority Office and the Image of God. Uh, he writes, the quest to escape authority has been a persistent feature of the modern world. We don't want people to be in charge of us. We don't want anyone to be in charge of us. 
And I think it's also true about post-modernity. One writer put it this way. Post-modernity is still in the line of modernity as rebellion against rebellion is still rebellion. As an attack on the constraints of grammar must still be written in grammatical sentences. As a skeptical argument against the structures of rationality must still be put rationally. Um, So I would say for the last 500 years, authority has been a real problem for us. But I think more specifically, since the 18th century, authority has really gotten a bad name. We as Americans have just recently celebrated our rebellion against British authority. In the 1770s and 1780s, to secure independence from the authority of the British Parliament and the British Crown over the 13 colonies. The Brits celebrate the Grand Revolution, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, in which Parliament was given more authority than the Crown. The Dutch look back on the 80 years war against Spain. And then there is the French Revolution of 1789, which I think in many ways has affected the Western imagination more than the American Revolution. That somehow there has, this myth has arisen of heroic struggle against any and all kinds of authority. As a result, everyone living since that time has tended to identify authority as potential oppression. We just don't trust it. I mentioned last week that there are at least four reasons why authority has acquired such a bad name. First of all, it seems to conflict with our notion of justice. If a a government cracks down on malcontents, then somehow it is seen as overlooking the justice of their cause. And so that's bad authority. Secondly, it seems to conflict with spontaneity. You know, if you have authority telling you what to do, well, no, you're killing spontaneity. You're killing this vitality of human life. You're inhibiting who I'm supposed to be. Thirdly, the imposition of authority is seen as inhibiting or curtailing the search for truth. And as we've seen, even out of a biblical context, people believe that the truth will set you free. But if there's authority, then you can't be set free. And lastly, authority seems to be connected with arbitrariness. And so it has a bad name. It doesn't help that we've lived after Marx and Nietzsche and and Freud, um, the, the masters, if you wish, of suspicion, the school of suspicion, in which they have this hermeneutic of suspicion. Um, they have come to regard, and as a result, I think we do as well, even in our own selves, when we say something, when we think something, when we say we have a particular desire, uh, almost immediately in our mind, we're trying to dig deeper. What, what is, what's really behind that statement? What's really going on? And so, as a result, when we come to the classic writings, say, of Plato or Aristotle or Cicero or Thomas Aquinas, these are regarded with profound suspicion. And they're regarded as nothing more than the musing of those notorious dead white European males that somehow are trying to impose their will on everyone else. Those who are the heirs of Immanuel Kant are convinced that if you are subject to authority, it is a sign of ethical immaturity. That if you are ethically mature, you don't need anyone to be over you telling you what you should or should not do. 
Why should we defer to anyone besides ourselves? Why should we listen to anyone else? Authority has come to be seen as demeaning and alienating. Because we live when and where we do, even though we are the people of God, we breathe the same air, the same, we live in the same culture. And so we have found that over time we are not all that comfortable with the notion of authority. If there is such a thing as legitimate authority, where does that legitimacy come from? As those who are the people of God and who believe in his revelation in both creation and in scripture, on some level we might find ourselves agreeing with our neighbors about the matter of authority. We find ourselves being suspicious as well, in part due to our own experiences, but also because we know that the world is not the way it should be. So when somebody says, this is wrong, this is bad, this is broken, we would say, you know, you might be right because the world is fallen, everything is broken, and so there you might have something, you might have a point to what you're saying. But as I said last week, and what I wanted to emphasize today, this is not where the conversation should begin. I mentioned this last week, and I have in the past. Uh, there's a deep fundamental problem for many believers, and that is when they begin a conversation on whatever topic, uh, morality, uh, economics, uh, politics, the arts, you name it, oftentimes, if not all the time, the conversation begins in the context of a fallen world where everything is broken. And from there they move to analysis, and from there they move on to a solution. And the solution, in many ways, is man-made. It is something that we've come up with on our own. It isn't a returning to an original blueprint, if you wish, of what God had in creation. It is something that we have constructed ourselves. I'm convinced that we should think in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, how was something when God originally made? And now, how has it become broken? Uh, How is it twisted? Why is it not working the way that it should? And then lastly, how is it being redeemed? Since Jesus has come into the world, how is this thing being changed? How should it be changed as we look ahead to the new creation? This model, I think, is helpful in so many areas. But if we think to begin in the fall, we might imagine that this is the way God made the world. Rather than saying, no, no, this is how he made it in creation and now it's gotten messed up. And that's why Jesus came into the world to redeem it, to straighten things out. But if we begin here, then in many ways, I think we diminish God as creator. We diminish God as the good creator and God as the perfect creator. Even in a fallen world, creation is a gift from God. I think we should be clear on that. But something has gone wrong. And we need to recognize that if we begin here in the fallen world, not in creation, if there is no creation, then there is no fall. You can't have a perfect state and then fall into something. This is just the way that it is. And then there can be no redemption. There cannot be a taking what has been broken and putting it together according to what God intended originally. Redemption does not only mean being saved or being delivered. Uh, 
It also means being recovered. In the biblical paradigm, we start with creation, which as we saw in the series on creation, was not the finished product. God was beginning a process that was going to end in the new creation. And as one writer has put it, had Adam and Eve not sinned, had sin not come into the world, Jesus would have still come into the world to point to new creation. He would not have been put to death. But he would have still, God would have still come in among his creatures. But creation is the beginning of the project. A project derailed by Adam's sin. And now everything is defaced. It is marred. It's unsound. It is broken down. So, let's not begin in a fallen world. Let's begin in God's creation and his original intent. The conversation I want us to begin in creation is that of authority. Because, as I said, we live in the modern or postmodern world where everyone seems to reject authority. Everyone is suspicious of authority. What does the Bible have to say about authority? And again, let's not begin in Romans 13, though it is an important chapter that we are to be subject to the authorities because God has established them. We need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to creation. If we're to understand this, we in fact have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. I believe that authority is something that resides in us as an office, a calling given at creation. Koizas puts it this way in his book, Indeed, when we encounter authority, we encounter nothing less than the image of God, which always points beyond itself. By office, what is intended is calling. It is an assignment. It is a commission to which a proper response is expected. And authority is geared toward others. That is, I have been given a calling and it isn't for myself. It is so that I can serve God and I can serve my neighbor. It's focused on service. It's focused on being and helping with our fellow human beings. That authority, however, must be seen in the context of being made in the image of God. We bear the image of God. This is in contrast to the modern view in which authority resides in the person as person, not as an image bearer. Koizos writes in his introduction, Authority, we shall argue, is one of God's good gifts, making life possible in this world which he created redeemed and sustained by his grace. We can no more imagine life without authority than we can conceive of it without sunshine, rain, or the fertility of the soil. More to the point, given that authority is intimately connected to the very image of God, authority is an integral, or is as integral to human life as humanity itself. The deprecation of authority amounts to a deprecation of humanity. By contrast, the redemption of humanity entails, at least in principle, the redemption of authority in all its manifestations. So I said last week, you might disagree with Koizos in his conclusions, but he begins the conversation in the right place, in creation, being made in the image of God. What about the image of God? What What is involved with that? Well, first of all, it does not mean that we are all gods, that somehow we all have little bits of God in us. We say that we have 
if you wish, divine qualities, things like reason, will, and justice. But we do not imagine, or we should not, that because we have these, somehow we have the divine spark within us. That somehow we have a little bit of God within us. This is important in the area of authority. The second thing about being made in the image of God is that every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being. That's why all human life has value. This stands in contrast to the ancient world, as Moses is writing the account of creation, in which the king alone was said to have a connection with the divine. That the king alone had the image, if you wish, of the divine on him. In his capacity as ruler, the king was the authorized representative of the gods. By contrast, in scripture, all human beings bear the image of God, not just their royal overlords, not just their kings. And the image of God is a grant of responsibility to all people, male and female, rich, poor, king, peasant. Well, when was this authority conferred? When was it given? Well, in Genesis 1, verses 26, 27, and 28, we find both God's intent to create humanity in his image and then God giving instructions to humanity. Let me read it to you. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What we find in this is that all human beings, whatever calling God may have given to them, find themselves made in the image of God and given a calling, a responsibility, an authority as stewards over creation. By the way, just a side note. Throughout church history, there have been different opinions of what it means to be made in the image of God. Augustine suggested that it involved intelligence, and Aquinas saw it as being located in the mind, in the intellect. Um, And Calvin said that the proper seat of God's image is in the soul. But since the Reformation, I think people have come to see that God's image involves the whole person. It isn't just my mind, that in my thinking, that somehow represents the image of God in me. All of me is, in fact, to live in response to God's call. Therefore, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, not simply with all our mind. So the image of God is not merely the intellect. It is relational. It is representational. It is not restricted to our ability to think logically. Oh, I think rationally because I'm made in the image of God. It is much more than that. After all, does not Paul tell us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Koizos writes it this way, when we get up in the morning, we do so in the image of God. When we begin the day's work, we do so as those created in God's image. When we spend time with our families, we do so as image-bearing creatures. 
everything we do in the fullness of our lives is inevitably impacted by our creation in God's image, even if that image is broken and defaced by sin. As God's people, I think we would affirm that this is true. And yet, there is this niggling thing in the back of our minds, because in the modern world, this has been reversed. The argument is made not that we are made in God's image, but that we have made God in our own image, that he is, in fact, a projection. I remember uh, someone years ago uh, showed me a bulletin from a local church, and and the story was told uh, that a woman went up to the pastor after the service and said, you know, pastor, I really don't like this, this business of being made in the image of God. I'm just not happy with that. And he said, well, I, I, I would have you think about this, that God is made in your image. So she came back the next week and she said, you know, I like that. I'm like, yeah, who doesn't? You're a very modern person that we see God not as the one who makes us and we represent him, but that somehow we have projected God and we have made him up and then he can be whoever or we want him or her to be, as people would say. When it comes to authority, man's basic authority comes because he is made in the image of God. And his or her authority comes from the Creator. And this authority, as I hope we will see uh, next Sunday, perhaps beyond that, is dispersed throughout our callings. It isn't simply political. And we'll talk about this, Lord willing, next week. People oftentimes confuse power and authority. Um, If somebody holds you up with a gun and says, give me your money, well, they have power. They don't necessarily have authority. Because without the gun, you're not going to give them the money. Okay, so we need to be careful when it comes to such matters. But anyway, beginning with creation is important. But we should not imagine that things in creation like uh, frozen in time, static, unchanging, that Adam and Eve, God created them and they were perfect and that was that. And then they messed up and then we have the fall and all that. In fact, as we've seen, as we've gone through looking at creation a number of times, God puts them in a very special place. He puts them in Eden, a garden. The whole earth is not a garden because they are told that they need to subdue the earth. But God has created a garden for them because Adam and Eve at the beginning are inexperienced. They are new. They need to learn things. They need to discover things. They need to encounter God's creation and they need to learn discernment and wisdom. So when you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, you see that there is a spiritual awakening. God gives them a command because they wouldn't know otherwise that they can't eat from this particular tree. They don't know that they can eat from all the other trees. God must tell them this. and Okay, now they know this. Then there is a cultural awakening, which is really hinted at quite strongly in Genesis 2, because the description of Eden is one of, of great beauty. That God didn't simply make Adam and Eve and stick them out in a desert or in a, on a plain somewhere. He puts them in a garden where there are all types of plants and trees. And then there's a social awakening when God puts Adam to sleep and then takes a rib 
creates Eve and then he brings them together and Adam breaks out into song and says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But each of these awakenings were just that. They were awakenings. They were beginnings. That Adam and Eve needed to grow. They needed to learn. They needed to develop. And I'm convinced that as Adam and Eve grew and matured, the day might come when God would have, in fact, allowed them to eat from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But at this point, they're not ready. And so it's a matter of, you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I say so. You're not capable of understanding why. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had no wants. They were free to dream, to use their creativity, to name the animals, to work in productive and rewarding ways, to reap the fruits of their labor, to take the human pleasure and the whole of life in the image of God in his good pleasure. When Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out, the processes of development are still continuing. They are severely hampered and hindered by the various separations. Now man is psychologically not integrated. He is filled with fear. And then he's separated from his wife. There's a social uh, separation. The ground resists him. It's a whole different ballgame. And he is separated from the presence of God. But what began in Eden continues afterwards, but in a much, much darker world. If we don't see this, by the way, if we think, oh, in creation they are like frozen in time, they never grow, they never learn, they're just perfect instead of needing to develop. Then when we come over here, we almost do not see any connection, except for you have Adam and Eve, but there's almost no connection. As a result, many people, when they read Genesis chapter 4, which is the next chapter after the fall, and we read about children being born, and cities being built, and metal instruments being forged, and music being composed, people are like, well, that's, that's all fallen. That's, that's the bad stuff. That didn't happen in Eden. No, no, no. It did not happen in Eden, but it is a part of the ongoing process. So in the same way we have authority in the garden, we have authority here. This is not necessarily bad. It's part of this developing as God intends. By the way, I must tell you that there is a pastor who has said, because based on Genesis 4, that all music is bad. And only begrudgingly allows his congregation to sing uh, during their services. Because in, if you look at chapter 4, you know, the people that are mentioned with regard to music are the descendants of Cain. And so they must be terrible. They must be bad. Therefore, all these things are bad. And cities are bad. Based on that, not at all. In the same way, authority in and of itself is not bad. It is a continuation of what God intended, beginning in creation. So, as we begin this conversation, and it is the beginning of a conversation on the matter of authority, we need to think in terms of creation. How was it intended? originally in fall how did it get sidetracked and then in redemption leading to new creation how this new project or the project will that God began in Genesis 1 will be completed
a year ago, tomorrow actually, I think, Ben Ross spoke. It was Gracie's first time to come to church. And he spoke about the difficulty that we as Americans face when it comes to the matter of God as king. Because we just don't like the business of kings. Um, You mean like as in your kingdom come? Yeah. Um, Because we fought against the British. They had a king. We didn't like King George III. And so we've we've rejected that notion. I, I absolutely agree with Ben. I think it would take it a step further that as modern and postmodern people, we struggle with God as Lord. As in, he gets to tell us what to do. I should have mentioned this earlier because it's been banging around my head this whole time. I wanted to mention at this point in the sermon, my younger sister and I did not get along when we were growing up. Uh, primarily because I was the oldest and she wanted to be the oldest and she wasn't. And so when my parents would be gone, I would be in charge. And my sister was famous for saying, you're not the boss of me. I think we we might say that that's the modern motto, that we would say to anything and anyone, you're not the boss of me. That God gets to tell us what to do. Even people who don't believe in him, he gets to tell them what to do. I was watching a PBS thing the other day and this woman was complaining about, you know, that in this church, that, that what God was telling you to do wasn't just for Sundays, but for every day of your life. Just, just properly appalled at that notion. Well, our text tells us the Lord reigns. Does he have authority or does he not? I think as modern Christians, we may find it difficult to continue to believe as we should because God is seen as such an authoritarian figure and it really rubs us the wrong way. It goes against the grain. But to understand and recover a biblical idea of authority, we must return to creation, God's creating of the world, in which he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and he authorized those made in his image. And it is, in fact, that very issue, the issue of authority, that came into question and led Eve to sin and then her husband, Adam. She rejected God's authority to be the boss of her, if you wish. The rest of the Old Testament is an ongoing account of God's own people, like Adam and Eve, struggling with his authority. They like him helping them and answering their prayers and protecting them. They just don't like him telling them what to do. And so we see rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. Then the New Testament opens and we hear the words, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Both John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth preach this. The kingdom, meaning a king, meaning authority. We read at the end of the account of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. But it wasn't simply his teaching that had authority. He commanded the winds and the waves. The hymn we sang today, the winds and waves still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. He cast out demons. He healed the sick and raised the dead. 
In short, he who came to point the way to new creation did so with authority. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, before his ascension, he commissioned, he had the authority, he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world. He said to this to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. To properly understand authority, we must begin with creation. And the Lord willing, we will do this next week. But now here at the end, I'd like us to read our text. In light of what we've seen, Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. To which we would say, Amen. Because he has all authority. Let's pray together. Father, living when and where we do, we just find ourselves naturally resistant to authority, to hierarchical uh, structures in which someone is above me and someone above that person and so on. Now we have a multiplicity of laws. We have instructions from the IRS, from other government agencies, and it we really chafe against this notion. And sadly, it affects our relationship with you. Because we're not so sure we want you telling us what to do. And living in today's world, we imagine that we get to choose which of your commands we obey and which ones we don't. And rather than recognizing that we are made in your image, sadly, oftentimes we imagine you in our own image. As the psalmist say, we imagine that you were all together just like us. And this makes it more difficult to believe in today's world than it was a thousand years ago. Than it was when Jesus was here. And even in the Old Testament because we struggle with authority. 
Help us to recognize that the discussion must begin in Genesis 1 and 2. This is where we begin. And certainly in chapter 3, things are defaced. But then we go to the New Testament and Jesus comes, one with authority. I pray that in the weeks to come you would guide our thoughts and our conversations in this matter. And may we come to have a better understanding of what is right authority. And in the process, find our faith deepened. And may we be encouraged in our belief as we come to see authority as we should. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in a particular way for those that are traveling this week. And we pray for Mama De La Rosa, who so faithfully has taken care of Paz for 12 years, even before that, but in the convalescent home. And we're grateful for the opening that Ruth has found to give her mom some rest, that Ruth can serve her. Give Ruth wisdom and strength. Revive and strengthen Mama as well. We pray for Zib and Sarah that you would open doors for them with regard to work. All things are possible with you. And now we, as we leave this place, we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. By your grace, may we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray in Jesus' name.